Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. So good morning, everybody. I popped over to see uh, kids worship for a little bit. They were having an absolute blast, so we're really excited to be launching that. Um, I wanted to, to tell you a story about uh, Omar. He found Jesus Christ as Savior when he was around 21 years old. It's a cool story. Someone had handed him a Bible pamphlet, what we used to call tracks. This was when this was like a thing, right? You would hand someone a Bible track and they would, they would come to faith in Jesus. Um, it, was a lot, it seemed a lot easier back then. Uh, but... Uh, but he, he read it for like 20 minutes, and the guy asked him, do you have any questions? And he was like, oh, like, where does this leave me? And so he started really thinking about it and decided he wanted to know more about it, and he went and he got his hands on a Bible, and, uh, which was, it was it's more challenging for him to actually get his hands on a Bible. He got his hands on a Bible, and he uh, started reading it, looking for any place where it would talk about Jesus. And he came across a passage in John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anybody want to finish that one for me? No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the truth, and the life. And, and, and he, started, he started sensing that this Jesus was, was calling him. And he wasn't sure what that all meant. That was 20 years ago that he decided to give his life over to Christ. Pretty awesome. It was, what was unusual is that Omar was raised Muslim in Bangladesh. And so when he became a Christian, it actually plunged him into a spiritual wilderness. He didn't know any other Christians. There weren't churches that he knew of that he would be able to go to. And yet in his heart, he started to sense that he wanted to worship as Christians would if they had gathered up and sing. And so he, he did. He, he started just worshiping and praying through the Psalms by himself, alone, as his heart was moved to worship his Savior. But he, he made what many would, have, would consider to be quite a mistake. He kept reading. And eventually he found his way to Matthew chapter 28, where it said, Go therefore and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I guess the real issue was not simply that he read it, but that he believed it, and he started doing it. And at first he went to his mother, who was usually a very, very sweet lady, but her anger started boiling up as he tried to share with her the story of Jesus. But she wasn't nearly as angry as his father and his siblings got. They got so angry, they disowned him and kicked him out of the house. And so his isolation and loneliness deepened. He ended up trying to stay with a friend for a while. He had to find some sort of work to kind of uh, uh, deal with this new reality, found uh, some uh, work cleaning buses. And as he would go about his work, he kept remembering that it was his call to follow Jesus and, and to share his story. And so he would. And and people would mock him, and very, very few would, would listen to anything that he had to say. Omar says that during this time, 
whatever he got to share about the love of Jesus, it felt so good. Felt so good. In the midst of loneliness, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of his suffering, it felt so good. And, and I think many of us, we admire a person who is willing to suffer so well in a situation like this. But we would rarely consider our own suffering as something admirable. In fact, we dread suffering. I came across a list recently of things that Americans dread or fear, and it kind of changes every year depending on what's going on in the world. And so some of them, you, would, they, you know what they are, right? People that you love getting sick. Almost 60% of Americans dread this. Pollution of the oceans and rivers and lakes, 50%. Half of us are, are, are fearful of this. We, we dread this. And, and I'm actually surprised to hear it. It was great to hear it. I'm glad for it. Uh, not having enough money in the future, half of us think this is a problem, this is a concern. We're, we're worried about what that's going to do. And all of the, the top issues are related to our own suffering. We're, we're worried about how these things impact us now or in the future. Even the number one, any guess on what the number one fear was? Corrupt government officials. I was so shocked. I just stunned. I was like, really, this is amazing. Today in our political climate, really? 74%. That, that even that is about our own suffering because we know what they're going to do. They're going to mess the whole thing up and it's going to make our lives harder and more miserable, less blessed. Weirdly, murder hornets was on the list. Do you even remember murder hornets? I mean, I guess, I guess if I was being attacked by them, they would be on the top of my list, but 20% still had murder hornet. And I guess they're changing the name now. They're called like giant, massive, awful wasps that sting like an ice pick being driven through your skin or something like that. It's a long name. It's a technical name. Um, but it, it's something like that. Oh, 20% doesn't seem right. Whereas needles only scored 11%. I feel like those should be at least switched. More, are there not more people scared of needles? They should be. They're horrifying. And so like, yes, let's do that instead. But public speaking came in at, at almost 30%, which was the same as shark attacks which I thought was sort of curious. Like some of you would rather swim in shark-infested waters than come up here and like share your story with us for a little bit. Like, I don't even get this. It doesn't. And zombies came in at 9%. I don't know what to do with that. Like, I feel like that should either be 0% or 100%. Like if it's actually a fear, every one of us should, should dread this. So many of our, our, our plans that we make, so much of our work, so much of our investment, so many of our prayers, they're actually designed to alleviate our suffering. We even suffer now if we think it's going to reduce suffering later. I mean, that's the, that's the reason we exercise. That's the reason we diet, which is just suffering. Both of these, they're just suffering. We go to doctors, we take medications that they tell us because we're trying to alleviate future suffering. It's the only explanation for kale. Like, there's no reason you would choke that down if you didn't think it was going to alleviate some suffering later on in life. It makes no other sense. Our prayers, think about it. What are they mostly about? They're mostly about financial security now or in the future. They're mostly about that new job that'll give me some sort of security, some sort of future that I don't have to worry about. They'll help alleviate some pain, some anguish, some hardship right now. Health, always at the top of our list. Our own health, the health of other people, the people that we know around us that we love. We're like, please, this, we want to alleviate all of the suffering 
that is imaginable. We have to, we want to. And I'm not saying that, that these are all necessarily a problem or wrong or anything like that. It's far more nuanced than that. But, but what I do want to point out is that when we come to the Scriptures, we find the followers of Jesus with a completely different attitude about pain and suffering. In fact, there's something hopeful about suffering when you read through the Scriptures. It seems to me that, that somehow pain and suffering can be reframed in light of the promises that we get in the Scriptures. But let's, I want to review just a moment here before we get there, because last week we saw that if you want it, right, we're in this series called Wait For It, and we're studying Romans 8, and what we saw last week was that since we are his children, we are his heirs. And this is all super good news. If you want to be a child of God, you can. By trusting in Jesus, by following Jesus, you can become a child of God. Stop, you, could, you could switch from being a creation of God to being a child of God. And this is such great news. And if you just embrace this one idea in the scriptures, that, that we are heirs. So the king of the universe, the creator of everything, the one who has all power, all knowledge, all wisdom, all love, all goodness, we're his heirs. It's like you just found out that your, your, your uncle that you didn't know anything about, like a distant relative, was like super wealthy, the wealthiest person in the world, and he has just cut you the biggest life-changing check that you can ever imagine. Dropped it in the mail, it's on its way to you. You're an heir to a new fortune. Checks are like, they're... For younger people, it's like paper. They're like, we used to write them out and like send money. It was like not paper money. It was sort of paper money, but it was like between paper. And it get, the, the uncle zells you this incredible amount of money. And, and all of a sudden, it changes everything because this is actually your inheritance. You are an heir. He says here that we are. Now, this is such a curious idea for us, and this is where some of the tension starts to build. And because theologians, they have, an, they have a word for this, right? They, they talk about inaugurated eschatology. We talk about it as kind of already and not yet. What do we mean? Like, you're, you are a child of God if you follow Jesus. You are an heir, but you don't yet have your full inheritance. You are a child, but you haven't fully entered into your status as God's children. So you're already given it. You're already beginning to taste the blessing of it, but, in the, but it's going to become increasingly realized and then fully realized when Jesus comes back. It's already, but not quite yet. And that's how we experience God's glory. And so his glory is his radiance, it's his beauty, it's his power, it's all of the things that, that make God shine forth in the whole of creation, though it's, it's often shaded, it's often clouded, it's veiled right now, but his glory will one day be fully and completely revealed, and when that day comes, we're going to see his glory, we're going to see the glory of Jesus, and we're going to participate in that glory. In some mysterious way, that glory is ours as well as his children, and as his heirs. But, this is one of the biggest buts in the whole Bible, but if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Take any word in there, it'll bother you. We, you, must, have to, share, whatever that last one is. We must share his suffering. So good news. 
You're promised suffering. It's a guarantee. Hey, we have a lot of guests. A lot of folks been checking out the church. Some of you first time today, second, third time. Good news. Welcome to Beacon. You're promised suffering. <laughs> so we hope to get to know you. Give us another week. Um, we're promised. We must share in his suffering. I think there's so much resistance to suffering, even among Christians, maybe even particularly among Christians, maybe especially particularly among American Christians. We, we resist, run from, flee suffering. And yet Jesus suffered while on earth. You know, there are so many times that Jesus could have alleviated his own suffering, and he didn't. There were other times that he wanted his suffering alleviated, but he submitted the will to the Father. He would embrace suffering when he left the comforts of heaven. He did it so that he could bring comfort to us. The, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, he's called the Prince of Peace. He endured hostility from men and women because God had given him a mission that he needed to accomplish. We think of while he was being crucified, when he's in the midst of this incredible anguish and suffering, the time when many of our hearts grow cold, they, they, they grow in apathy, they grow in despair in times of intense suffering. And Jesus didn't let any of that happen. His heart didn't grow, grow cold, it didn't grow hard, and he prayed for the forgiveness of the, the very people who were causing his suffering. He embraced and willingly went into the, the mouth of suffering. It does followers of Jesus no good, and in fact, great harm to view suffering as an aberration, as an anomaly of life in this present age. The scriptures, he goes on to talk, he says, we know that all creation has been groaning. Everything you have ever known and seen, the whole of the world, the universe, the solar system, the planet, it's all the country, the, the, the towns that we live in, the businesses that we are a part of. The whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit and so it's the world, it's the creation, it's us, it's our own bodies, it's our physical body, it's our mental state, it's, it's our psychological state. It's all going to suffer. It's going to groan. And, and he, it's almost as if he knew how, how difficult this was going to be for people to hear because he says, listen, and we believers also groan even though we have the Spirit. This is, you know, he's been talking about the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit. And it is so common for Christians to think that as they grow in their faith and as they get closer to God, as they experience more and more of the Holy Spirit, that they ought not to experience suffering as much. And he's, he's heading that off. He's like, no, no, listen, even though you have the Holy Spirit, it's not just that you're like a rookie in the faith. That's why you're still suffering. I mean, the, the power and the presence of the Spirit isn't going to free you from suffering. I think Christians, we sometimes buy into this lie, but it's, we do it without looking at the Scriptures. Look at Job and look at Paul. Look at Jesus, the people who would, who would have manifested the power of the Spirit so incredibly in their lives, and they suffered. 
I remember it was, uh, my mother died many years ago now, like 25 years ago or something, and, and, uh, and she was dying of pancreatic cancer, but, and, and it was slow enough that we had all of these prayer chains going, people praying all over the place. And so it was international. There were people sending in their prayers from all over the world. There was, you know, my, my family was saying, there's a thousand people praying. She has to be healed. Of course, it was like, well, what's that magic number? Why are we so, every single follower of Jesus dies of their last disease. Why is it that we, 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 try, to, we, we try to turn this into some sort of magical equation? There's something here, this, this, the, 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 the lingering of the prosperity kind of gospel, the promise of healing, the guarantees of wealth or security. And we just cling to these things and we, we try to put a, a, a baptism on them and make them part of Jesus' plan for our lives. And we try to do these negotiations in the spirit realm so that God will guarantee us these sorts of things. Right? There's this miracle emphasis. It's even starting up again, and, and it's showing up in a lot of our, a lot of our songs. And, a lot of, and I'm not saying God can do what God wants to do. He is a God of miracles, and we know that, and we see that. But he's also a sovereign God, and, and he has told us in his word that the whole of creation is groaning, and even though we have the Spirit, we will suffer. We have got to come to grips because we can't live in fear of suffering. We can't spend all of our time and, and energy and emotional uh, energy trying to avoid suffering. Some of this suffering will actually need to be embraced by us. He gives us this sense, right? He's like within us as a forte. So you, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of the Holy Spirit is actually part of the problem. So you have in you the first fruits. You have the presence of the Spirit. And so every time there's any sort of heartache or anguish or anything like that in this world, the Spirit is there, which shows us that things aren't the way they ought to be. There's, a, there's something better coming. There's a promise. He's, he's a deposit in our hearts, which means the very presence of the Spirit actually accentuates our suffering because it tells us that there is something more. We're not yet fully satisfied. And so every single time your heart breaks, every single time your body creaks and lashes out at you in pain, and every single time your mind is overwhelmed and troubled, we can let this water the seeds of hope that the Spirit has put in us. It's the promise that this is not our final home, that something awesomer is still coming. Omar, he was approached. He's got a family, he's got a wife, he's got kids, and he was approached one day by a stranger who said, hey, I hear you're telling this thing about this Jesus. And he's like, yeah, I've been, been telling people about you know, how I met Jesus. And they're like... Could you come and tell my friends? And he's like, this is amazing. Like, this is great. He shows up and there's like five or six guys. And he starts, he, he brings his Bible and he brings his Quran. And he starts to explain that the message of Jesus in the Quran is very different from the picture you get in the Bible. And in the Bible, it says that we need a savior. And that Jesus was our savior. And that if we trust him, he'll forgive our sins and he'll, he'll bring us into eternity. And, it, and one of the men flew into a rage and he grabbed his Quran 
Omar's Quran and he ripped it, which is shocking in a, in a, in a dominant Muslim culture. This is a horrendous crime. You don't desecrate the Quran. He couldn't understand why this guy would do it. If he's angry, why would he actually desecrate the Quran? The next day, he figured out why. The police showed up to where he was staying. He had been framed. They made up the charges that he had actually desecrated the Quran. And so Omar was arrested, unjustly so. He was arrested, brought into a dark room where the, the officers took turns beating him with a baton all over his body, including the soles of his feet. They refused to give him food. They gave him very little water. They gave him a little water just so he could take pain meds. And you go, well, that's a small comfort. No, they gave him pain meds so they can prolong the beatings. Omar, during times like this, he said that I felt peace in my heart. I felt peace in my heart because I am a child of God. A child of God. He goes back to the child. He goes, he knows he's an heir. He knows that this moment isn't the, the sum of all moments. And with the promise of pain and suffering comes great hope. I mean, all the creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are against its will. All creation was subjected to God's curse. That word here, curse, it's futility, it's meaninglessness. This is the same word that the writer uses in the book of Ecclesiastes. It was subjected to, to foolishness, to, to uselessness. It's the curse but with eager hope, the creation looks forward. This is a cool word. It's like, it's this idea that the whole of creation is standing on its tippy toes. It's craning its neck. It's awaiting the day when the children of God will be birthed more fully and completely into the whole of their promises. The creation is waiting to see the day when you are glorified, when you are being made new. You see, ours is a different type of suffering. I mean, it's, it's a generative suffering. It's a suffering that leads somewhere. It, it leads to something. Now, this would have been a very controversial idea in Paul's day. You see, the Romans had this uh, propaganda machine going really since the time of Caesar Augustus. This is uh, uh, the altar of peace. And this uh, is an example of the kind of propaganda that uh, Augustus Caesar and the, all who followed him would have uh, fully supported and encouraged. And the idea was that the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that they had ushered in, was so unbelievably profound, so great, that not only did the people flourish, but nature flourished as well. The whole of this is designed with all of these intricate carvings of, of plants and animals, all in perfect order. And so Augustus and his propaganda machine and those that followed would say that because of the might and the power and the beauty of the Roman Empire, even creation itself was coming to peace. The world would enter a golden age. They, they say, the scholars tell us that on one side, is uh, the goddess Tellus, the earth goddess. 
children climbing on her. This was one of the great uh, symbols of abundance and security and safety. And she's got fruit on her lap. And, and, it, and it points to how everything all around us. On the other side was Roma. And, and Roma is sitting on a pile of armor, which some scholars say means that they're showing that because of the might of the Roman Empire, because of the power that now she sits upon her armor. That's what she's building it on. She's building it upon her, her, the, the strength and might, the Roman legions. And with that comes prosperity. Not just to the people, but look, there's animals who sit at their feet and, the, and, they, and they, th they thrive and they flourish. And so much so that under Nero, some years later, this is the time of Paul though, there was a poet and he said, at the sound of Caesar's name, strong winds become silent. Young lambs become energetic. Their mothers produce an abundance of milk and their fleece grows quickly and thickly. As if this peace wrought through the violence of the Roman Empire now extends into the very fabric of the creation. Paul comes on the scene and he goes, no, 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 no. The whole of creation is groaning. It's groaning. And if you were one of the many poor in ancient Rome, you would have seen through this whole charade. And we now, from the vantage point of 2,000 years of human history, we get to see through this charade as well. Things aren't getting better. Technology isn't going to save the planet. The might of one great empire isn't going to usher in the golden age of humanity. Education isn't going to solve all of our problems. AI isn't going to settle all world disputes not in our lifetime and not in any lifetime. This golden age of humanity isn't going to be wrought from our own hands. Paul comes on and he goes, no. The whole creation, it's waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, the creation was subjected to its curse. It was according to God's will. It will only be undone by God. And that will be led by his children coming into their full glory. He says that it's as in the pains of childbirth. As in the pains of childbirth. And only, only like half of us really can understand this at any given moment, right? I mean, some of you might dread it. I don't know. Men, I, I think I have a pretty good understanding of it. You know, like, well, what man doesn't? Like, really? Come on. Like, you know, is it really as bad as, say, like breaking my femur? The pains of childbirth. So I did hear that one doctor tried to help their patient understand it. And you could actually do this. They said, listen, she, she was going to be a new mom, and she was very nervous about it. And she's like, I'm, I'm really kind of nervous about how much it's going to hurt. And they're like, well, you know, it's hard to kind of describe. She's like, could you give me any hint as to what it's going to be like? The doctor's like, well, yeah, I can. Um, you can actually go ahead and pull out your upper lip. You can actually do this. It'll give you a sense as to what childbirth is like. You can pull out your upper lip. Go ahead, you try it. Men, you should do this so you have some empathy. You pull out your upper lip, and she says to the, to the lady, she's like, does that, does that hurt? And, and she's like, a little bit. And she's like, pull it a little harder. She pulls it a little harder. She's like, does that hurt as well? He's like, yep, yep. All right, now wrap it over your head. You get a sense as to what childbirth is going to be like. And you know, a, a woman that is screaming in pain that leads to suffering, heartache, death, might even sound like a woman screaming in birth pains. You might mistake them for the same sort of a thing, but of course they are entirely different. We are in the beginning of birth pains. We are in fact the promised birth. 
We're the beginning of the renewal of all things. The imagery is given to us so that we, it reframes suffering for us. So we get to look at it and go, oh, it's a different kind of suffering. It's a suffering that leads somewhere, that means something, that matters. That's the promise that the scriptures give us. And in the end, they say that we're as children, we're as heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. But if we're sharing his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. What we suffer now is nothing. We'd seen a picture of this one time. It was actually literally a picture. And the guy was explaining that, you know, this is the whole of what you might see on any given evening looking out into the sunset. And there's a certain depth to it and there's a certain uh, distance and it's a magnitude of a scene that is, is only really possible when you can see the whole of the thing. And what we often spend much of our life doing is only seeing this part. And if you're only looking at this part, things can look pretty dark and pretty gray. And maybe you get a little bit of hope over here. Even if you were to see this, you might think this is too blistering. It's too blazing for me. There's nothing, there, there, there's no contrast or depth. But mostly we, we, we look here and we go, and as we continue to go in through life, this is what the rest of life is going to be like. This is what we see. It's dark, it's gray, it's foreboding, it's threatening. And yet it's just one small part of the whole picture. It's a tiny little bit. Some of it might not even make sense. You might not even know what you're looking at if the frame is simply too small. In the scriptures, they come back again and again and again and say, but you, there is a bigger picture. Your part that you're playing, you don't see it now, but it is magnificent. It is grand. It's vast. Nothing compares. No amount of suffering today compares to the glory that will be revealed in you. You know, I can't actually tell you the end of Omar's story because it's still playing out. Omar is uh, still alive. He's still under constant threat of being arrested. Sometimes he is, sometimes he gets out, and then he goes back to doing what he's doing, and sometimes he's arrested again. He has to check in every single month. So we don't know where his story is going to end. I can tell you, that the torture that Omar endured and the treatment that he received after it caused him to permanently lose his hair. The beatings had, had shattered some of his vertebrae. So now he only walks with difficulty. Every day, walks with difficulty. I can tell you that whenever he ends up in prison, the beatings continue. The other prisoners, whether they be Muslim or Hindu, not a fan of Omar. Not to mention, of course, the guards that continue educating him with their batons. Omar shared that during the beatings, he would often lose consciousness. But whenever he would have moments of clarity, he would try to pray. And during one of these beatings, he, he, he came through, came to again, and he was alert for just a few moments, and he started to pray, and he had a vision. He said that during that vision, while he was being beaten, this peace from God that transcends understanding settled over him. And then Omar said that, I felt some of the pain that Jesus did when he died for us. 
getting beaten was like a blessing for me. I was really happy for that. The world isn't worthy of Omar's. So I think when we embrace the power and the beauty and the benefit of suffering now, it will lead us to a deep, deep hope. This is what the scriptures tell us. When God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us, we are given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Teresa Avila, she said that in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more than one night in an inconvenient hotel. That's your promise. As a child of the most high God, our suffering here will add to, enhance God's glory and yours. It's generative. It means something. And we can trust the scriptures and we can trust the promises of God that one day, though we linger here and, and suffer here, that one day unimaginable glory will be ours. C.S. Lewis, he captures it like this. He says that God will make the feeblest and filthiest, filthiest of us into a small g, God or goddess, a dazzling radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful. That is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Let's pray. Father, what we are asking is that you would take this truth of Scripture, this deep promise, this abiding hope, Lord. I pray that you would give us the bigger picture. You would let us see what part our story might play in a grand narrative that doesn't span our short 50, 60, 70 years, 80 or 90, if if we're deemed lucky by world standards. But Father, give us a perspective on what our life means in the scope of 10,000 years. Father, we're praying that these light and momentary struggles, which threaten to overwhelm us, which threaten to pull us off focus of, of what you're calling us to do, which cause our hearts to get hard and cold and fearful. Lord, I'm praying that instead of those things, that, that these moments of suffering would be turned into this redemptive, beautiful, God-honoring hope that settles deep, deep, deep in our souls. This is the promise that you made to us and you knew that it would be difficult for us. You encourage us time and again in a hundred different ways to trust you in this. And you've promised us that we can be your children and that we are your heirs. And Father, that's what we want. Make this more and more true of us. Give us this deep and settled sense. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.